I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Jesus has made plain his intentions to build a new community of people unified in their confession of his lordship. But when people share life, they share sin. We hurt one another, mess up. When, not if, this happens, Jesus prepares his disciples to address sin in the community, and his approach is anything but passive or permissive. Communities, churches, relationships of all kinds, really, have been toppled by confrontation. You know this. You've likely experienced this. Someone does something. Someone else points it out, igniting a chain of successive explosions that claim, in the end, more than just the confronter and the confronted. Um, One story I think of just from earlier in Matthew's Gospel is John the Baptist confronts the, uh, the governor of Galilee, Herod, about Herod's incestuous adultery. And then a few scenes later, Herod has John's severed head presented on a plate. It makes a lot of sense why so many people are allergic to confrontation because it often goes so poorly. Why so many would rather keep to themselves or keep quiet or let things be. But ever the disruptor of our comfort zones, Jesus of Nazareth actually commands his apprentices to confront one another. And he has a very specific way of going about it. So we've just completed a series and a set of practices around the idea of community, uh, specifically the New Testament's teachings on community. But But really, when are we ever not talking about community at church. Tonight we're back in an ongoing study of Matthew, which is one first century biography of Jesus, and we are once again talking about community. Community, in one sense, is what we're doing right now. It's a topic Jesus broaches almost constantly. The entire Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' collection of core teachings, is entirely about relationships from beginning to end. It's about how to live in community. Last week, if you were here, Cam with Kiana and Dave talked at length about navigating the highs and the lows of community, how to be formed even in the imperfections of community. Incidentally, where we left off in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was, not surprisingly, teaching on community and relationships. And at this point in the story, Jesus' apprentices have begun to realize that he is the long-awaited king of Israel, a figure for whom the Jewish people had been awaiting and expecting for centuries now. They realize Jesus is this guy. But Jesus, frustratingly, isn't doing the things these expectant people hoped he would do. He isn't gathering a militia. He isn't organizing an uprising against Rome at all, it seems. And worse still, he's recently begun to confide to his close friends that he intends to make his way to Jerusalem, which is the city where the Jews believe the Messiah would be revealed to the world. But when Jesus gets there, he plans to, and I quote, suffer and die. And paradoxically, Jesus has also made plain his intention to build his church or build his gathering or community. Or put plainly, he wants to establish and grow an assembling of people on the foundation of one shared confession. And that confession is Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, he's the Messiah. Meaning when two or more people say, stand together and admit, share in the belief that Jesus is who he claims to be, Jesus himself can build a family out of that. But Jesus' family operates with a mechanic completely unnatural and counterintuitive to the families and communities of the world. It will function with and through self-sacrificial love. 
So Jesus has to continue to teach his apprentices how that will work. And when we left off a few weeks ago, Jesus had outlined what scholars call the three self-denials of love. Love limits its own freedom. That's the flexibility of love. Love redirects its ambition, no longer for greatness or status, but to be lowly, to be the servant of all people. That's the humility of love. He taught that love does not hurt another person's faith. That's the sensitivity of love. You lay aside your own freedom at times for the sake of someone else. And then next, Jesus begins to build out what one scholar describes as the three loving concerns for one another. It began with this story that Jesus told about one lost sheep amongst 99 sheep that all stay put. And he says that love seeks out the one that wanders away, which is a beautiful thing. For Jesus, authentic self-sacrificial love in the kingdom of God isn't necessarily an emotional disposition, meaning it isn't a feeling per se, though it involves feelings. But self-sacrificial love is a way of life. It's a way of being and doing. And sometimes that way looks like the parable of the lost sheep, which if you know the story, it's a beautiful story, even sentimental sounding. But sometimes self-sacrificial love is confrontational, and it's not pretty sounding. It's not sentimental sounding, which brings us to tonight's text. So let's read the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15. You guys ready? You all right? Great. Thank you. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, and he quotes Deuteronomy, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan Or a tax collector. Now, the chapters that preceded this one were all about how disciples of Jesus deal with their own lives, very internal. Uh, Essentially, how disciples of Jesus discipline themselves. He taught them how to not offend others by paying the temple tax. He redefined their paradigms for greatness by saying, whoever has the lowest status in the world has the highest status in the kingdom. He taught them not to hurt one another by. Uh, faith by causing them to stumble. He took that very seriously. Now it's time for disciples to learn how to direct that same concern outward to those in their community. After you deal with your own stuff, now you need to learn to help hold one another accountable. And it's really not out of nowhere. This teaching flows directly from the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus is saying that in community, Brothers and sisters will inevitably wander and stray. He's been clear about that from the beginning. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells this parable about someone who's out sowing seeds, kind of represents uh, Jesus who's trying to grow the kingdom and spread the gospel message to people. And in that story, three of the four sets of seeds don't survive. And among those three that don't survive, uh, some grow for a season, but ultimately wither and die. This much is clear. There are people who answer Jesus' invitation to apprenticeship, but then somewhere along the way, renounce it. 
Most of you know this from your own lives and the people in them. Some of you in the room had renounced discipleship only to return to your teacher and king later in life. Well done. And Jesus is here teaching that we play a role in confronting those who wander. So let's work through this text one line at a time and try to figure out exactly what it means. Look at chapter 18, verse 15 again. It says, if your brother or sister sins. Now, some ancient manuscripts of Matthew read, maybe some of your translations read, if your brother or sister sins against you, meaning sin is something that you can do against God and you can do it against one another. Now, sin is obviously a word with a lot of baggage. We often think of sin as a kind of arbitrary rule book arranged by a strange and preferential God. This webcomic, I think, illustrates this commonly held misunderstanding. I realize it's a weird thing to have someone read a comic to you, but I'm about to do it, so brace yourself. So God's, you know, watching earth, I assume, through this device. He said, they're eating it again. And Jesus is like, Dad, please, I love you. You can't keep doing this to yourself. I couldn't have been clear. No shellfish. It says so right in Leviticus, shellfish are unclean and an abomination. And Jesus is like, but why, Dad? Why are shellfish an abomination? He's like, I got my reasons. Look at the way he's looking at that, I don't know, crawfish or something like that. So... <laughs> That's the way most of us think about the idea of sin, is God's weird. He's got some preferences that make a lot of sense. Don't kill each other. Okay, I can get on board with that. Why no shellfish? It's so strange. So yes, the, the baggage the word sin carries impresses upon it a confusing weight. But in the scriptures, in both the Hebrew and Greek, the word is, of all things, an archery term. To sin is to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye. So if the bullseye is the loving and kind Father God's perfect desire for you and the people in the world and the entire world all around you, that all of the above might thrive and be whole and experience what Jesus calls life to the fullest, then sin is when you miss that mark, when you fall short of that standard, that ideal. And this means that there is a mark, and to live as God's people means aiming to hit said mark, and one can succeed or fail in varying degrees. See, the scriptures are filled with this word and this idea called uh, shalom. Often it's simply translated in as the English word peace in your Bibles, but shalom means a lot more than peace. Shalom is the idea of God's peace, God's wholeness and the goodness of the garden as God intended, rightly realized in humanity and over all of creation. So theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes sin as the vandalism of shalom. And that's an important distinction in tonight's text. My kids have this great little book that tells the story of Jesus, and when it describes the concept of sin, it does so with simple elegance with the line, sin ruins things. Thus, the simplistic but entirely effective parenting analogy that people often use frames it, I think, really well. Why don't we let our kids play in the streets? Because they could die. They don't always understand our logic or the danger. They only know that there seems to be more fun in the street. And in a sense, there is. There's more space or, you know, like it's flat. You could ride your scooter on it, that kind of thing. But they could die. Sin ruins things. That's why this entire teaching from Jesus is so pressing. If sin blossoms within the community of Jesus' disciples, something has to be done because sin ruins things. But what must be done? So let's read all of verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, before we proceed, let's sort out a thing or two. Firstly, confronting another person about sin is not exactly an appealing idea for just about anyone that isn't an angry fundamentalist. 
So <laughs> most of us, I suspect, are familiar with one of two extreme deviations from the way that Jesus taught his disciples to confront one another. On the one side of the spectrum, you have the belligerent sin police. And this could be like the hostile, insecure, fundamentalist pastor or podcaster or blogger, the one who's always upset about something. It could be an authority figure that you've known in your life or someone in your family, the weird uncle you have to argue with at Thanksgiving or whatever it is. The person for whom all of life is sin waiting to happen. And they have been appointed, or they have rather appointed themselves, as the lone hero entrusted with the all-consuming task of calling that sin out in everyone and everything, and every day. And it usually doesn't have a lot to do with confronting their own sin, uh, interestingly enough, unless it's with kind of dismissive junk drawer terminology. Well, like, we're all depraved. We're all wretched sinners in the eyes of God. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the passive sin enablers. Folks from this camp are, to my estimation, decidedly more common than the latter in our context anyway. Often it's because, quite frankly, uh, people are lazy or they're scared, cowardly. Confrontation is hard. It's really uncomfortable. It asks something of you, and that's hard. Or it could be less to do with passivity in the basic sense and more in the name of like, you do you. Who am I to judge another person's story? Which is a weird way I always put it. I hear it put. I don't put it that way. I hear other people put it. Because everything is a story now for some reason. People are stories. People are storytellers. Uh, I've often, I think I've brought this up quite a bit now, but the I wound up on this trip to Israel a few years ago with a bunch of influencers. So they were all like uh, famous Instagram personalities. I was the only person that was not. Um, but I was like, sure, I'll go to Israel. Um, so they all called themselves influencers, which is uh, millennial speak for polishing the brass on the Titanic. Because uh, <laughs> grumpy old man Josh thinks that, that this is perhaps not sustainable in the long run, but what do I know? I'm out of touch, obviously. At any rate, there I am on this trip, um, and there was a lot of like, you know, you'd end up in a new place. Go around the table, everyone say what you do. And uh, there was a lot of talk about, everyone was constantly going on about stories. This is the first time I was exposed to the story speak. Finding new ways to use story in a sentence, especially if you're like the ninth person to go, you got to find a new way to say, I just love stories, I'm a crafter of stories, I'm interested in people's stories, I tell stories. So I'm at a dinner of this, like an hour of this, and everyone's going around the table with all this. One dude gets up to tell a story, and I kid you not, the strap of his designer satchel was engraved with a single word, story, you know? <laughs> at any rate, that's the language I sometimes hear. That's their story. I can't critique their story. Thing is, both camps, the belligerent sin police and the passive sin enablers, have got big problems with the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. Notice the language in tonight's text, the words of Jesus himself. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. This is, in other words, not a suggestion. Hey, you know, one way of possibly dealing with this could be that you could go and have a conversation. It's actually a command. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Meaning, if your brother or sister sins against you and you do not go and point out their fault, you are now in active disobedient disobedience to the teachings of Jesus. In other words, you are now sinning, which to me is like, oh, yikes. Um, and it doesn't take a theologian to deduce why Jesus takes this so seriously. The adult 
who stands by silently while children wander into the street saying, it's their own journey. Who am I to say anything about their decisions? They become complicit in whatever harm befalls those children and in the devastating effects that tragedy will wreak on those affected by it. Parents who do not consistently correct their children, who don't tell them no and act as an authority over them but stand by shrugging and saying, well, what can we say? They freak out if they don't get what they want. They become complicit when the consequences of that passive and fretful approach to parenting catch up to their kids in tragic ways in adolescence and adulthood. I'm sure lots of you guys have seen that play out around you. And more than that, we would say of these adults not letting, or these adults who are letting kids play on the street, or these parents who don't correct their children, that they are not loving their children well. The community of God's people is to be built up out of the people, broken and imperfect though they may be, who are fighting to love one another well. Sin ruins things. It ruins people. It ruins careers. It ruins ministries. It ruins churches. It ruins relationships. It ruins communities. It ruins marriages. It ruins lives. Sin ruins things. It is the truck barreling down the otherwise quiet road where children play unattended, and if no one steps in, it will level them. So by standing by passively, not confronting someone for fear of disrupting your own comfort or because you don't want to judge, you are not loving them. N.T. Wright argues, many Christians have taken the paper over the cracks option, believing that this is what forgiveness means, pretending that everything is all right and the other person hasn't really done anything wrong. That simply won't do. If someone else, another Christian in particular, has been offensive, aggressive, bullying, dishonest, or immoral, nothing whatever is gained by trying to create reconciliation without confronting the real evil that's been done. Forgiveness doesn't mean saying it didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is when it did happen and it did matter and you're going to deal with it and end up loving and accepting one another again anyway. That's why the sequence recommended here in tonight's text is so vital. When we confront, not if, we never do so empowered by angry self-righteousness. I think of Paul's writing in Galatians 6 when he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. That word restore in Greek literally means to put something back together and make it whole once again. In fact, the same word is used elsewhere uh, to uh, describe mending fishing nets back together. Mend them gently. So even the act of correction, of confrontation and accountability is a restorative act of love and it is to be done in Paul's language gently. And yes, I believe personally that we should hate sin, uh, that righteous anger is an appropriate reaction to sin because sin destroys people. We should hate that people are destroyed. But we do not restore one another gently when we're angry and when we're worked up with indignation. I am entirely convinced that the people who take sin most seriously are not the fire and brimstone conservative fundamentalists or the picketers or the angry bloggers. I think that the people who take most sin most seriously are the ones most aware of their own sin and who have dealt honestly with the devastating effects of their own sin in their own lives. 
In Luke 18, Jesus tells this stark, beautiful little story that goes like this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector, a criminal, someone in league with the oppressor. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this person, this tax collector, though he was a loathsome criminal in Jesus' context, is in the best position to confront a brother or sister on their sin because he takes his own sin very seriously and is grieved by it. If you've ever been confronted uh, gently and lovingly by someone who sees that you are making or about to make the same mistake that they themselves have made and paid for already, you know what I'm talking about. Someone who's genuinely desperate to spare you from what they know to be pain and suffering from experience. That's the idea. The reality is that Jesus doesn't suggest, he commands that we hold one another accountable for sin. There's a very specific methodology to the confrontation Jesus commands. Uh, N.T. Wright describes it as severely practical and ruthlessly idealistic. And then he goes on to say, that's not a bad combination. So let's get back to the text one more time. Chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, why just the two of you? Jesus wants the confronting disciple to honor the one being confronted meaning to ascribe them value by guarding their reputation and allowing them an opportunity to speak. And notice Jesus, just the two of you command, prohibits all gossip. Jesus is here dictating a clear line of action. The offending party goes straight, or the offended party goes straight to the offending party, not venting with others first. There is, of course, a time and a place to seek out the wisdom of others, more on that in a little bit, on how to best confront someone else, but I think we all know that's very different than gossip, though many of us have tried to pass one off for the other. We confront one another one-on-one because the offending party needs to be heard. We could be mistaken, or we could at least be under-informed as someone who has been called out one-on-one by others at this point many times in my life, I can tell you that simply knowing that the confronting person has come to you by themselves, is doing something that's really difficult and unpleasant and awkward, and that they care enough to do it, it's a very disarming thing. It levels emotions. It can calm both of you down. Ganging up on someone is an easier thing to do because you're not all by yourself, but it never works. Defenses go up, the door closes immediately, and sin is not adequately addressed. So verse 15 goes on. If they listen to you, you've won them over, which is awesome. That's the best case scenario. In my experience, personally, it happens all the time. In fact, in my own life, personally, it happens more than these other outcomes, but not always. Sometimes no amount of preparation, no amount of loving humility will be received by the one confronted. So look at verse 16. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, and he quotes Deuteronomy, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, don't read this as, okay, they didn't listen, now bring in the reinforcements. Notice the language, quote, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is to protect 
both the offended person and the offender. More people, in theory, creates the possibility for greater objectivity, the possibility for a hurt person and a now defensive person to better hear one another. It's the same idea behind something like marriage counseling. It's not tagging in teammates to come clobber one person. When this is done well, it doesn't look like taking sides at all. So a few years ago, I had a massive fallout with a close friend. It was really ugly, really painful. I confronted them. They wouldn't hear it. So I asked a friend of ours to come with me to talk uh, to them again. And now the three of us agreed to meet. And I remember this friend that I'd invited uh, to step in and be the, you know, one or more to come with me, kept me in check as much as he advocated for me. He was right there saying, well, Josh, that isn't fair. You know, you can't say things like or that. Or he'd say, that's not what he said. Don't put words in his mouth, that kind of thing. But even when you do this well, it's entirely possible the person who has sinned will not accept the honest and honoring confrontation, which is why in verse 17, Jesus says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, in context, this would not have been like this. This would not have been me on stage, you know, right after announcements. Hey, by the way, everyone, so-and-so, Katie has sinned against me. <laughs> and then you all shout back, we knew it. It was inevitable. Let's get her, you know, and we run around or something. Um, that sounds ridiculous, but that kind of thing actually happens, sadly. But to be clear, I don't think that it's healthy or careful or honoring, and I would argue it misses the point of Jesus' teaching by a mile. Jesus is talking actually about the micro-community, not what would become the kind of larger family of the church. He's talking about the family around the dinner table, not the family crowded into a sanctuary. So in our context, that would the church, tell it to the church, would mean something more like your Van City community or a group of intimate friends who know both people and follow Jesus and share life in some meaningful sense. The inner circle with most intimate knowledge of the person. And notice, this is chance number three. Jesus is creating every avenue for this person to be honored, to be heard, to process, to have time, and to be restored. And this person is, in theory, the one who blew it. They're the one who sinned, and Jesus is giving them such generous accommodation. That is the personality of Jesus. But eventually, it could get to the point where it becomes necessary for the community to say something because this person will not hear from the one or the two or the three. And what happens if they refuse even then? Look at the rest of verse 17. This gets intense. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Well, I have heard, I've heard some, in an effort to kind of soften this text, suggest, well, yeah, Jesus says treat them like tax collectors, but Jesus welcomed tax collectors. But scholars argue that when Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, he's speaking into the traditional Jewish understanding and practice of his day. He's not hiding a subtle plot twist to undo his entire teaching, rendering this whole text a contradiction that makes no sense. Now, of course, this idea, which is sometimes called church discipline, uh, you, maybe you've heard that term, or even the even more metal-sounding excommunication, um, it appeals to no one. This is not a cool doctrine. It's not fun. Uh, it shouldn't appeal to anyone. It is a tragedy. It is an occasion for grief and heartbreak and lament, which is why Jesus puts up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But according to Jesus, there is a time and a place when it becomes necessary. Why? 
Many of you, I'm sure, have seen the show Intervention, which is problematic ethically because you're like, what are we enjoying about this show? Watching these addicted people or do we really like the redemptive endings? I don't know. Um, So if you've seen the show, it it follows the same basic formula every episode. An addict of some kind is confronted by a concerned family who presents said addict with a list of ultimatums. It's usually either rehab or, and then things like, we'll no longer pay for your bills, we'll no longer let you live in our house, we'll no longer, you know, come to hang out with you, whatever it might be. And there are all sorts of reasons for this. The extinguishing of enabling behaviors that keep an addict sick the gesture of severity that communicates, listen, we can't go on like this, so things are going to have to change. But ultimately, in theory, the intervention itself and everything in it is an effort to save the addict's life, not to rid the family of the addict. Few people participating want to sever ties with the addict or put them out on the streets. They want the seriousness of the act to sober the addict enough to repent. And if they will not, the hope is that disconnected from enablement, um, in a sense made lonesome, the addict might bottom out, come to their senses, and be restored to the family. Now, a destructively unrepentant person is rarely a drug addict that sleeps on your couch, could be, but many of the same premises carry over into this concept. Removing the destructively unrepentant person from the life rhythm of the community is an effort to save their lives. And the subsequent authors of the New Testament consistently teach this same principle. It's not just a fluke in the teachings of Jesus. In 2 John, we read this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Sin ruins things. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a case of unrepentant incest in a budding church community, and he says of the guilty man this, So when you're assembling and I am with you in spirit and the power of Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan or remove him from the gathering for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, send him away from the community for a season so that his sin will be confronted and destroyed and he will be saved. Notice that's the outcome. In Titus 1, we read this really intense passage, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. It's a whole thing we don't have time for. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought not to, they ought not to teach. And for that sake of dishonest gain. But then later in Titus 3, there's the gentleness, the gentleness piece. Remind the people to be subject to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. In 2 Thessalonians, the same idea reads this way. Take special note of anyone who does not obey your instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, listen, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now notice the juxtaposition of language that sounds really rigid and hardcore, but with tenderness on the other end. The seriousness with which the early church regarded sin and the effects that it has on the community, but the great compassion that they maintain for the person who's doing the sinning. Thus, theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes this, excommunication is an act of love. 
It is not to throw someone out of the church, but rather an attempt to help them see that they have become a stumbling block and are therefore already out of the church. Excommunication is a call to home. That is why Jesus insists that those who would follow him cannot let sins go unchallenged. If we fail to challenge one another in our sins, we in fact abandon one another to our sin. We show how little we love our brother and sister by our refusal to engage in the hard work of reconciliation. And really, how do you restore the family back to normalcy without reconciliation? Again, this from N.T. Wright. He says, we don't like the sound of this, but we need to ask what the alternatives are. If there is real evil involved, refusal to face it means a necessary break of fellowship. Reconciliation can only come after the problem has been faced. So when it's time to confront, here are a few things that should, I think, happen before you even ask to speak with a person who has sinned, built out of the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. The first thing is this. If you're the one doing the confronting, you repent first. Examine yourself for sin. Ask God's Spirit to reveal it in you, then confess it, apologize, and change or repent. Now, realistically, you will not be able to address any and all offenses on your record for your entire life. The idea is not to become perfect before you confront someone, but you can and must address whatever is pressing and egregious in your own heart and life before you confront another person. When you've done that, ask God how to confront the person. Spend a few days, take your time praying and listening, maybe fast and ask during that. Ask for specific words, a picture, a prophetic image or phrase or scripture. Come prepared to speak it over that person. Listen, I prayed for you. I could be wrong. This is what I felt like I was saying. One time, uh, something that occurred to me just today while I was praying through this text is uh, there was a time my wife, Abby, confronted me on my sin she followed Jesus' paradigm. She came to me first by herself, and the, her confrontation was entirely a prophetic picture. She was like, I had this image of you, and there was a length of chain from your, your ankle to the ground, and you were trying to participate in like church and like friendship and community, but you weren't free to move around because of the sin in your life. Um, and it was because she prayed, she listened, that was the image she got, she brought it to me as the confrontation. I think that that's an entirely appropriate way to come and speak over someone, and with, obviously, with humility, acknowledging that you could be wrong. Finally, uh, you can seek out counsel if that's possible or helpful. Do not gossip with friends. Do not go to vent to someone about how awful this person is with the horrible thing that they've done, but go to a wise, mature, ideally older disciple of Jesus, grieved that it must be done, and ask for their unbiased advice. Don't go looking for someone who's just going to pat you on the back and confirm your bias. Do not arm yourself with their advice against the other person. Do not go and say, well, I asked so-and-so, and they agreed with me. Do this, seeking out counsel, to check yourself, not them. Am I in the right? Is there anything else that can and should be done before I go? And then go, as Jesus said, and point out their fault. Now, before we end, let's work through two important considerations from this passage and we'll be done. Notice something important about this text. Look down at chapter 18, verse 15, one more time. If who sins against you? 
Right, thank you. I'm sure someone said it before the loud one, but, you know, my ears are just horrible at this point. If your brother or sister, meaning this is a conversation and commandment entirely and only for within the family of community, it is not a conversation in any sense about how to address the sin of those beyond your community or who do not follow Jesus in the first place. This is perhaps the most obvious aspect of the teaching that the belligerent sin police conveniently overlook. In the same text we just read from 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that really metal sounding like expel, you know, what, what was it, destroy, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In that same text, Paul encourages the church in Corinthians to confront the sin. He concludes by saying this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, back to what he was saying earlier, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a people. Again, it's about the table of fellowship, the micro-community. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he quotes, expel the wicked person from among you. Notice two stark and not at all subtle takeaways from that passage. Do not judge those outside the church. Do judge those inside. And judge here is not the same thing as passing judgment, the thing that Jesus uh, forbids us from doing. That's kind of ultimate condemnation over person where I am saying this is the final thing on you. This is about making moral assessments of one another's lives. It's something that we're not only allowed to do, we have to do. In other words, hold one another accountable. Out there in the world, amongst those who don't even follow Jesus, that is not my business. But in our community... What you do is my business because I love you and we are a family. We think of confrontation as, and accountability as unloving, but according to Jesus, what's actually unloving is doing nothing. Apathy is unloving. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on Matthew says it well. He says, when a Christian brother or sister lives outrageously, it is the Christian's duty to confront that person. Since Christ's reputation, the church's integrity, the community's well-being, and the person's salvation are all at stake. So the next consideration is what we do and do not confront. The text says, when your brother or sister sins, when they disobey the scriptures, when they live at odds with God's intended purpose for goodness in their lives and the life of their community, not simply when you're annoyed or your ego has been bruised or your personal sensibilities have been irked, when there is sin, destructive, anti-Jesus behavior that breaks the community down could be something seemingly small like persistent gossip or passive aggressiveness or flakiness. Or it could be something that seems much bigger like uh, deceitfulness, an affair, stealing, an addiction to pornography, whatever it might be. You confront sin not because it's your job to police those in your community, but so that we can, all of us, save one another from death. I want that. I don't like it. I don't like confronting anyone. I certainly don't like being confronted, but I want it. I want to be saved from death. And it's not just the person's life at stake. It's also the life of the community, and it's the reputation of Jesus at stake as well. Once more from Bruner, he says this, Jesus is Lord. 
And so the faithful church will practice the discipline of her Lord, but prayerfully and carefully in order to avoid giving unnecessary offense to the accused, to the church, to the world, or to God's name. In the final analysis, the church that does not discipline not only disobeys her master, she has less impact on her community. When the church disciplines Christians, she will, be, she will more effectively discipline non-Christians. A disciplining, or pardon me, she will more effectively disciple non-Christians. A disciplining church will prove more loving in the long run than a church that advertises God's love, but then shows no great interest in whether or not this love is practiced by her members. Now, I realize that however you nuance this teaching, regardless of how extensively you exegete this passage, it is a difficult teaching. Many of Jesus' teachings are. Often the most important and truly life-giving teachings are, for us, the most challenging. So we need to take it really seriously. But there's something inferred here, another crucial teaching of Jesus, that will enable us to reconcile well and to end the troubling but necessary work of confrontation at stage one, and that is to repent well. If and when a brother or sister comes to you to call you on your sin, be slow to defend yourself and quick to listen. Be slow to make excuses and quick to repent. I have, again, been confronted many times, and in the past, I uh, can remember many times feeling like this immediate urge to defend myself, and honestly, there may have been times when there was some level of credibility to that defense, but I realized as I squirm, one time in particular I can think of where everything in me is like, wait, but they don't know, and there's this, and they need to hear this. I realized as I squirmed in my chair that my defense didn't really change the fact that I needed to repent, and I felt like God's Spirit was saying, so just repent. <laughs> I was wrong. Forgive me. Restore me. So set aside your felt need to nuance every reason you had for doing this or that thing and simply apologize and make changes. Repentance isn't about becoming a doormat for the moral police. It isn't about laying down at any and every little glimmer of offense. You can and should talk things through reasonably. Of course we listen to one another. Of course we have patience with one another. But... When we are confronted, we take the confrontation seriously, and we are prepared to repent when necessary. Repentance is an ongoing discipline of spiritual formation, because when you admit that you were wrong, and that there is a better way, and that you need to turn around and change, you allow God's Spirit to nurture and grow in you the gift of humility. Remember that line from Galatians, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, mend them. We're all in process. Every one of you who follows Jesus has and will, from time to time, stumble awkwardly down the narrow road of discipleship. Part of what it means to live in community is accountability, yes, but in order to restore one another, to mend them. It's not just to illuminate sin with your words, but walk with one another into repentance with action and concern. This is, I think, one dimension of what it means to carry one another's burdens so that we can develop and maintain a healthy disposition of self-awareness, not to become sad and dejected and I'm just so horrible all the time operating in a kind of false modesty. I'm nothing but a sinner, all that. But to realize and remember, I am in many ways broken and imperfect. I need the family of God to love me enough to, in compassion, with compassion, help me see my sin so that I can overcome it. 
so that we become a people who repent long before we are ever confronted in the first place. So with that, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak over us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.